1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, give ear to the reading of the Word of God this morning. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, because we're starting our study in this book, uh, need to get some some form of an introduction to it, so we know. You know, I know nobody goes to the mall anymore. Everybody shops online, but at the mall, I think they probably still have the little map when you first walk in, and it has the little dot. And it says you are here, so you know what floor you are, and you know you know where the store is you're looking for. Well, in a, in a similar way, and much more importantly, though, it helps to know what the book is about in, as a whole, in general, and so we know where we are at any point in time as we're looking at what the book is saying. Um, the first epistle of, uh, or letter of the Apostle John, there are three epistles of his. He also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. But you'll notice as I read there, there was no formal greeting of any kind. John doesn't say, like Paul often writes something like, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the churches in, you know, pick a town of Ephesus or Galatia or whatnot. John doesn't do that. He doesn't even identify himself as the author, which he also did not do in the Gospel of John, but we know that he wrote it for other reasons. Uh, there's reasons that we believe that John is the author of it. Uh, but because it wasn't written that we know of to a particular church in a particular place, but probably written to a number of different churches, it's, it's often categorized in your Bible as one of the quote-unquote general epistles. That doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it wasn't written just to one particular church for one particular issue. And while that, that lack of formal greeting might seem a little bit strange to you, maybe as you read it, you thought, why doesn't John at least do the usual and say, hi, John, and, and tell us what church is to and what the, what the problem is. Uh, the fact that he doesn't do that and he kind of jumps right in with both feet, that might actually serve to emphasize for us how serious the situation was that he was dealing with in the church or churches to which he was writing this letter. Uh, the Gospel of Christ, as we get through this book, week by week, you'll see uh, apparently the Gospel of Christ was under attack by false teachers in John's day, and so John wastes no time jumping right into its defense. Now, what was the particular form of false teaching that John was uh, fighting against in his day? That is not an easy thing to piece together. And really, uh, the only way that we can do that is by looking at the entirety of the letter and sort of piecing together, kind of reverse engineering what it was that he was dealing with uh, by what he says against it uh, to refute it. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways, it might be better for us in some, sometimes that we don't know too much detail really about what he was dealing with because sometimes when, like, you know, when you read the Psalms, sometimes the Psalms will give you the heading and the heading will say, I'm just kind of spitballing here, you know, this is a psalm of David written at the time his son Absalom was rebelling against him. You know, so you know the historical circumstance, and sometimes that helps you kind of understand where the psalmist or the writer of whatever book you're studying is going with what he is saying. But sometimes when you have too much information in that, uh, along those lines, 
it can serve an opposite effect. Not, not intentionally, but we can take it the wrong way and say, well, I don't, I don't face or we don't face something exactly like that. So this really has no relevance or application for me or us in our day. And that is certainly not the case here. And so in some ways, the, the somewhat lack of specifics of what John was dealing with might be good for us to keep us from that kind of an error, to keep from thinking, oh, this doesn't apply to us. We don't have this exact thing we're dealing with. I think as we go through the letter, you'll find that we may not be dealing with what I'll call Gnosticism in our day, but some very similar things are always cropping up in the churches to undermine the truth of the gospel. So what John says here does have very much uh, application and relevance to us. Um, suffice it to say that in John's day in the first century, the church was being threatened by what we might think of as an early form of Gnosticism. If you've never heard of that word before, that's join the club. That's not something we casually talk about in normal conversation. Um, Gnosticism, what was it? You could say that in some ways it was the attempt, a, a terrible attempt, to give kind of a Christian veneer to pagan mysticism. Now, I don't think it takes much of a stretch to say that happens today all the time. We always have a, a syncretistic, pluralistic spirit of, of our age. Maybe every age has that kind of a spirit to it. In other words, people, they want to have, they want to, they want to hedge their bets you know, in some ways, or they want to kind of have it both ways. They want to say they're Christians, but believe in all kinds of other things. I remember back in the day, uh, somebody remarked, I forget who it was, but because of some of his stated beliefs, I remember somebody calling Al Gore. Remember Al Gore who invented the internet? Uh, thanks, Al, for giving us the ability to live stream. Uh, Al Gore, somebody called him a Buddhist Baptist because he, basically his beliefs were, were nature, nature worship. But he was raised, he was a Tennessee senator, right? And he was a Baptist by, by birth, so-called. Uh, but his beliefs tended towards Buddhism in some ways. And so people said he was a Buddhist. Now, was he actually a Buddhist? No. But were his beliefs and practices kind of in line with something like that? Yeah. He tried to have it both ways, apparently. Many people do, do similar kinds of things. People try to, uh, in, in some ways, worship in a, a pagan mystic way but slap a Christian label on it or veneer on it and act as if that's Christianity. In fact, what does every cult known to man, every Christian, nominally Christian cult do? Whether it be Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they call themselves what? Christian. If you ask a Mormon, are you a Christian, what are they going to say? They're going to say yes. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness if they're a Christian, what are they going to say? They say it when they come knock on your door. Yes, I'm a Christian. Are they actually Christians? No. And we'll see in many ways uh, why that is. But, but that's the same kind of thing happens everywhere in every age. And it was no different in John's day. The same thing happens in many ways today. And so I think First John is as relevant to us as it ever could be. Now Gnosticism, if I can give you the, the, uh, the Reader's Digest uh, boiled down version, um, essentially viewed the physical realm, the physical things, the material world as evil and viewed the spiritual, the, the non-material realm, as good. Now, I dare say there's a lot of that even in the church today. People talk like, like Gnostics in many ways. And this, this false teaching, this heresy, had some very far-reaching implications for Christian doctrine and practice. For example, if matter is evil, and that's what they held to, what does that do to the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And this could, according to Gnosticism, could the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, equal in power and glory of one substance with the Father and the Spirit, 
could he become physical? That would be a big problem because it would make him inherently evil, according to Gnosticism. So what did they do? They denied, they denied the incarnation. They explained it away. But once, once you do that, once you explain away or do away with the incarnation of Christ, what else have you done? You've done away with the atonement. If, if the Son of God was not made man and did not suffer in his physical, real, true physical body and die for our sins, take the, taking the wrath of God and rise again from the grave on the third day, then we are all still in our sins and we are, as Paul says, of most men to be pitied. In other words, it has real effects. It matters what you believe. There are, as has been said, there are consequences of ideas, whether they're intended or not. And so Gnosticism undid the gospel it undid the atonement and our salvation with it. If Christ has not died and risen again, then we are all still in our sins and abiding under the wrath of God. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, later in the book, it says this. 1 John 4, verses 2 to 3, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And here it is, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is what? Not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. He calls it Antichrist because that's what it is. It's anti-Christ. It's anti the doctrine and truth of Christ, even denying that he came in the flesh. The Gnostics denied that Jesus had truly come in the flesh, and so John is warning the church here and the churches that such teachers are of the spirit of Antichrist and are not sent from God. When he says about discerning the spirits, what's he talking about? Listening to teachers and saying to yourself, is this person from God or not? And he gives the church, the apostle John does here, he gives us kind of a litmus test, doesn't he? If they hold to this, they're from God. If they hold to this or don't hold to this, they're not. And it's not neutral, is it? He doesn't just say they're not from God. He says they're anti-Christ. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. You can't be a Christian and still hold to these things that these false teachers are, are telling you. Likewise, the heresy of Gnosticism and things like it also has very dangerous implications for the Christian life. Actual boots on the ground, rubber meets the road kind of things. It's not just... Thought, your thought life up here somewhere that doesn't affect how you live. Your thoughts, what you believe, affects how you live. Uh, and, and Gnosticism had a strange uh, effect on, on the life of those who held to it. And it usually took one of two forms. Usually Gnosticism, this rejection of the material world, either led its adherence to a form of asceticism. In other words, kind of a rough treatment of the body. They would deny certain things, deny food, deny uh, marriage. They would reject marriage and tell their people to, to reject that. Uh, kind of a harshness, a harsh treatment of the body in general. Or the opposite end of the spectrum, it could lead, and I think this is probably the one that was more common, to a form of licentiousness. And you can probably guess this might have been the more popular of the, two, of the two options, right? Because this is how the argument would go. Well, if the physical's evil and your body doesn't matter, dot, 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 what would they tell you? Do whatever you want. What you do in your bodies with these physical bodies doesn't matter because God's going to destroy them and get rid of them anyway. Is that Christian teaching? No, in fact, it's, it's remarkable how many times in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, that Paul specifically mentions the body. 
and glorifying God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, he says, You were bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God. Now, we would say, just put a period there. Therefore, glorify God. He goes, no. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies, which are, that is, which belong to God. Jesus paid for you, body and soul. One day he is going to raise our bodies from the dead, and you will have a body in heaven. A glorified body without the weaknesses, imperfections, and whatnot that we have now. But Jesus had a body and a soul. He still does. He is still the God-man, even now incarnate in glory in heaven in our place, holding our place in, in a sense for us. So that is what Gnosticism did. It either taught people to try to earn salvation by harsh treatment of the body, by rejecting things and being hard on themselves, or to licentiousness and sinning their fill. And people follow the same ideas even today. It doesn't have to be Gnosticism that results in those two things. Legalism or licentiousness, uh, those are still all over the place, even in the church today. Now, in response to that kind of a false teaching about how to live, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.10, and he says a lot of things like this throughout the letter. He says, 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident, or clear, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It doesn't sound like there's anything in the middle, right? Here it is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That is a, a direct contradiction to the Gnostic heresy. Now, one brief point of application for us in the church today, I think, among many, is that the pastors and the elders of, of Christ's church uh, one of the things that we are called to do and, and must do is to be on guard uh, to protect the sheep against false teaching. To protect the sheep against the wolves. And that may sound like a, you may think that sounds like an insulting metaphor to use of me as the part of the church, but that's the same metaphor the Bible uses. We are all his sheep and the people of his pasture, right? God is, is our great our good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. But what does Paul say in Acts 28 to, or Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 29, to the elders of Ephesus that they had to be on guard and watch themselves and watch the flock, because savage wolves were going to come in, not sparing the flock. Now, if that's the case in Paul's day, when the apostles still walked this earth, how much more is that probably the case in our own day when they're in heaven, and you're left with people like me, you know, people people with feet of clay, you know, kind of thing. We don't have Paul, we don't have Peter, we don't have John. We have their teaching, and that's good enough. But the, the pastors and elders of Christ's church, even today, maybe even more so today, have to be on guard against false teaching to protect the flock. And that means those pastors who refuse to do that, the pastors who refuse to protect the flock against heresy and error and false teaching, they are guilty of dereliction of duty. If you've served in the military, you know that's not a small thing to say. Dereliction of, of duty. It's part of the job description of a shepherd to not just feed them and lead them and guide them, to protect them against the wolves who are sure to come. And that means, among other things, and this, this might be the harder thing to ask, the members of the flock have to be willing to be protected from false teaching. Now you might say that sounds like a simple thing to do, Pastor. What? Who wouldn't possibly, who would possibly object to a thing like that? But I've seen it happen multiple times. Thankfully, not in our little congregation. But I've seen, I've seen friends of mine that have spoken out against false teaching, even in the midst of, of their church, and they get punished for it. 
They stand up against error and heresy, and the people that get in trouble aren't the heretics. It's the people who raise up the concern. It happens more often than you might like to think, and that means we have to let our pastors and elders do their jobs and, and let them do so with joy, calling out false teaching and false teachers, even from the pulpit or in counseling or teaching or whatever the case may be. Sometimes your minister, your elders, in order to be faithful to their calling, must appear to break what is sometimes called the 11th commandment. Do you know what that commandment is? It's in the white spaces after Exodus 21 through 17. You have to look really close to see it uh, with a special pair of goggles. Uh, but the 11th commandment is be nice. Some people think that's the only commandment. Anybody ever see Roadhouse? Don't watch that. But his one rule was be nice, right? Uh, Dalton's rule, be nice. Um, people think that's the 11th commandment. And so anything that doesn't look nice, that's the problem. Not heresy, not false teaching, not false gospels, somebody not being nice. Now, uh, your, your pastor, your elders may at times not seem very nice in how they call out false teaching, but I'll say this, there's nothing nice about allowing a false gospel to fester and infect the flock. The damage that can be done by that is incalculable, and there's nothing nice about allowing something like that to go on unchecked. Throughout the book of 1 John, he says things about uh, why he writes the letter, which is nice of him to do for us uh, by the inspiration of the Spirit. In our own text today, in verse 4, you might notice it says there, and we, he doesn't just say John himself by himself, he says, and we are writing these things, what things? The things he writes in this letter, we are writing these things so that our joy may be full. The King James has your joy may be full. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit. But that's one of the purposes of the letter, that, that Christian's joy might be full. I don't know about you, but that sounds good to me. It sounds like something I would like to have, and so hopefully as we go through this letter, that will be the result, among others. Uh, in 1 John, 5, uh, 1 John 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Hopefully that, too, will be a result of us going through this letter in our lives, and we will be less inclined towards sin. Uh, in their case, it might have been because of Gnosticism. For us, it could be any number of things. Later in the book, in the very last chapter, 1 John 5, verse 13, he gives what many commentators to believe to be the primary purpose for him writing the letter. The main thing the whole letter is about, I think they're all, it's kind of all the above, but, uh, and what does he write there? He says, John, 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, what? That you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, 1 John, by and large, no matter what it talks about and trying to refute false teaching and all that, the purpose of all of that was that Christians might know they have eternal life. That Christians might have assurance of their salvation. The doctrine of assurance is what 1 John is, is really all about. Now, how important is assurance? Now, we make a distinction. Sometimes we talk about eternal security. Once saved, always saved, that kind of a thing. And we affirm that. We say that you don't lose your salvation, that once you're saved, God, God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, being convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what God starts. If you're a Christian, you didn't start that, God did. And you're not the one that's going to finish it. God is going to finish it and work in you and through you and keep you by the power of the same faith that he brought you to Christ in the beginning with. 
but how important is assurance? Assurance is not eternal security. It's the subjective knowledge of and experience of that eternal security. It's knowing in your heart of hearts, I'm right with the Lord. People sometimes say, like, I know where I'm going to go when I die. That's assurance. Knowing that God is going to make all things work out together for your good. Romans 8, 28. That's assurance. That God, God has got you. And that you will, you will be all right in eternity with him if you are in Christ. And I'll say this, if, you, if you're a Christian, have you ever struggled with a lack of assurance? I would be honestly shocked, uh, being a Christian as long as I am and have been, I'd be shocked if, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, which I will not do, but if I were to say, is there anyone in this room who's never, as a Christian, struggled with a lack of assurance, I'd be stunned if one hand went up. It might be one of the most common issues and problems in the Christian life uh, that we can all identify with. You may not identify with every possible problem or sin or whatnot or temptation, but that's what I think we all know. Uh, when we sing that, uh, you know, in some ways there's a hymn we sing, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Everybody identifies with that, that line. We know how prone we are to wander, and because of that, very often we, we have a weak or lack of, of assurance. Uh, if you've ever struggled with the, as a Christian with a lack of assurance, I think you know just how serious and important a thing that is. And false teaching, for all of its bad effects on the Christian faith and the Christian life, false teaching, as it undermines and attacks the truth of the gospel, always, and, and by necessity, undermines and attacks assurance as well. Because when you came to Christ, you believed the gospel, and you said, this is the truth, what I believe. False teaching comes in and says, has God really said? And once you start asking that, your assurance kind of goes out the window. You're not sure anymore, whereas you should be. And so false teaching undermines the gospel and also undermines assurance. And so it's no mystery that the Apostle John goes to such lengths in this little letter in defending the truth of the gospel of Christ against false teaching and showing how the truth of the gospel rightly understood and believe results in a strengthening of our assurance of our salvation in Christ. That's, that's kind of the theme of the whole letter, starting with the passage that we're looking at this morning in the first four verses of chapter 1. Now, the, there's three things we're going to look at, Lord willing. The first of those is, the first thing that John does in our brief text this morning is to remind us of the trustworthiness of the gospel of Christ. He wants us to be sure and assured of the trustworthiness of the gospel of Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. There's a... Uh, a rambling, uh, long-winded long thing to go, kind of goes round and around, which is kind of John's style. Um, and so the gospel that John and the other apostles preached at the first, and the same gospel that is preached today by those who faithfully do so, uh, from the very beginning was the testimony of eyewitnesses. John, this wasn't something that John and the other apostles kind of heard through the grapevine. They were eyewitnesses of it, who heard, they saw, they beheld, and even touched the word of life in their hands. The Apostle Peter says much the same thing in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. He writes this, 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, right? Peter's like, I was there. I saw him with my own eyes, transfigured before us, shining you know, in, in white apparel, almost blinding them. He heard the voice of God the Father speaking of his son and to his son from heaven. He's testifying also there, in case you didn't notice this, to the Trinity. Just as our own text does here in many ways, talking about the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is not far behind there as well. But Peter goes on to say something else. What's the old commercial always say? But wait, there's more. He doesn't stop there. Peter doesn't just say, hey, what the things I told you, I saw and heard. Trust me. He says this, verse 19 to 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy, no true prophecy, right? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but here it is, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is a kind of a working picture, pictorial definition of inspiration. How do we get the scriptures? Men spoke or wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write or speak what it was that God intended them to say down to the letter. That's that's the doctrine of inspiration. So what Peter is saying there is the things we preached were eyewitnesses of, uh, but the scriptures that we have passed down to you are the inspired and an errant testimony of the prophets and apostles to Christ and the eternal life that is to be found only in him. That is what we have in the scriptures, and these are the things that we are to trust and to protect us from false teaching and false gospels. Notice that John in our text goes so far as to say that he didn't just hear and see and behold the eternal life. He says he, we touched it with our hands. We touched it. It's, Christianity is not some you know, ethereal, non-material anything that has nothing to do with history or physicality or anything. It's not just a philosophy of, of religion. It's things actually happen. Christ came, was, was born of Mary, uh, came and took on flesh, did things, physically died and rose again from the dead, all these things. He says he touched with their hands the word of life. Now, not only does this kind of effectively refute the Gnostics, remember what they keep saying, they said, material's evil, so Jesus can't be physical in any way. He says, no, not so fast. We touched him. Like, I saw him, I heard him, I beheld him. I even touched Jesus Christ when he was manifest from heaven. Uh, but this also serves to remind us of the essence of the gospel. It, you know, when you read this text, it's easy to get confused about what John is talking about. Is he talking about the message of Christ, or is he talking about Christ himself? commentators kind of differ. They go back and forth on it's just the message, the preaching, or it's the person, and I'll just cheat and say it's both. They're so closely related, they're so closely related to one another as to be inseparable. 
That is what he is saying, that the essence of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, John's way of writing here in the opening passage of this letter uh, is a little bit difficult to interpret, but uh, I, I think we don't have to choose between whether John is talking about the gospel, the message, or Christ himself. I think it's an unnecessary choice. Ian Hamilton, one commentator, says this, John is actually inviting us to see that the message of Christ and the person of Christ are one. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the gospel. There's no gospel without Christ. He is himself in many ways the gospel. James Boyce puts it this way, the most important thing John has to say in his preface, that's verses 1 through 4, the most important thing John has to say in his preface is that Christianity is Jesus Christ. That's, that's the heart of the gospel. Well, the second thing that John points us to in our, our brief text this morning is not just the trustworthiness of the gospel of Christ, but also its proclamation, the preaching of the gospel of Christ. The apostles were not just witnesses of Christ, his death and resurrection from the beginning, but they were also, because of that, witnesses to Christ, to those they preached to one of the primary qualifications you might know of an apostle was an apostle had to have been with Christ from the beginning of his earthly ministry. You know that I, I sometimes have to tell guys at a Bible study I teach on Tuesday afternoons. You know, we, we, we tend to think, well, nobody would ever claim to be an apostle now, but they do. People people come around and try to claim to be apostles now. They try to claim the authority of, of an apostle. And so I always, uh, from time to time, have to tell them, you know, the scripture holds very specific qualifications for it, to, for someone to be an apostle. And there's no one breathing the air on this side of the grass that qualifies. No one, no one can look you in the eye and say they were with Christ throughout his entire earthly ministry. If they do, they should be committed to an insane asylum. They have not been there. He, that was a long time ago. But one of the primary qualifications, maybe the first one, was being a witness of Christ personally. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Remember when Judas Iscariot went out and hung himself and, and basically vacated the office? Uh, the apostles got together, looked at the scriptures, and said to themselves, the Bible prophesied that another had to take his place and take his office. And this is what Acts 1, 21 to 22, verse, verses there. Peter says this, he tells the other apostles, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So from his baptism, which was the inauguration of his public ministry, up until the ascension. The whole thing they had to be a witness of. Uh, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They had, a witness, they had to be witnesses of these things, and then they were witnesses because of that to those things, especially including the resurrection. You might know Matthias was chosen uh, by God's grace uh, to be that next apostle who was with them. But the point is the witnesses of Christ became, because of that, witnesses to Christ, to others who they preached the gospel to. Those who saw, heard, beheld, and touched now testified to the truth of Christ and the gospel, and that's really what the preaching of the gospel really is. It's testifying and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done in time for our salvation. 
That's what John uh, repeatedly reminds us of in verses 2 and 3 of our text. Look there again. It says, he says, the life was made manifest. Remember, Jesus is often called, what's he called in the scripture? The way, the truth, and the life. The life was made manifest. He was revealed in due time. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So Christ and eternal life in him was made manifest. Our text says it twice and because of that, that's what John and the other apostles of Christ proclaimed also twice in our text to their hearers. Now, unlike the, the Gnostics, the, the false teachers who appealed to vanity and pride, promising to give their adherents, their listeners, the inside scoop or gnosis, that's where the word comes from, it means knowledge, uh, that the uninitiated, uninitiated masses had no access to, the apostles, rather, were commissioned by the risen Christ not to preach to a few here and there, they were commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel is not some inside secret to be kept and hoarded. It's meant to be proclaimed, and salvation in him is meant to be proclaimed to all men to the very ends of the earth. You know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll, I won't say much on this subject for the, for the time being, but one of the things that the cults and false teachers almost always do, I want to say always, but I'll just say almost, one of the ways they get people is appealing to your pride. They appeal to your vanity. And, you know, it's, it's the same appeal in some ways as gossip. Why do people eat up gossip? It might make them feel better about themselves, to feel bad about somebody else. But you want to know something that other people don't know. You want to have the insight, oh, I know what's really going on. Seems like almost every other thing you read or hear in political commentary takes that form. I know the secret. I know what's really going on. It's about that. It's about knowing the secret that other people don't know. More, more people have been built out of their money by salespeople offering similar kinds of things. Not just the cults, but uh, salespeople do those kinds of things as well. They, they appeal to your pride and your vanity. They say, here's something other people don't know. Here's something other people don't have. The, the apostles came along, sent by Christ, and said, we're preaching to the ends of the earth that all men might hear the gospel and believe. There's no second-level Christianity. There's no inside-level of Christianity. There's just Christianity. That's why he says in our text, he says uh, that you may have fellowship, verse 3, with us. John doesn't say, you know, there's us apostles and then there's you little people. And you're in the door, so you should be happy, but we're going to be over here you know, we're going to be over here enjoying our rights and privileges, uh, and, and we'll come down and mingle amongst you once in a while. No, he says that your fellowship may be with us, and guess who their fellowship was with, that you were going to share with, he says, by the gospel, with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no levels, there's no, no ladder to climb in the Christian life in that way. Our fellowship is with the apostles and with God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son. The apostolic gospel is still to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. It's not to be hoarded or kept secret. It's a treasure that's not to be buried. It's to be scattered far and wide. It's the only treasure in the world that the more it's scattered and given away, the more that it grows and increases as it's spread. Well, last but not least, we've seen the trustworthiness of the gospel, the proclamation of it. 
And now John tells us in verse 3 and 4 kind of a twofold purpose of that proclamation and testimony to the gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. John says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So why is the gospel to be proclaimed? Why did John and the other apostles preach the gospel? Why do we in the church today continue to preach the gospel of Christ? There are a number of things you could say in answer to that question. John is certainly talking about the salvation of sinners, isn't he? He hasn't moved on to some other subject. He's still talking about the salvation of sinners. But notice the way he describes salvation in our, in our text. It's a matter of being brought into fellowship with God and being brought into the fellowship of the people of God, that is, the church as well. That's, those are the terms in which John used in our text to speak of salvation. Now, there are many ways that the Bible speaks of our salvation in Christ, all of which are fine and good and right. The Bible talks very often about reconciliation with God. That's what salvation is, being reconciled to God, being a sinner who is at enmity with God, and by the work of Christ and by faith in him, being made right with God, being reconciled to him, so you're no longer an enemy of God, but rather even adopted into his family. The Bible talks about forgiveness very often. When it talks. In some ways, we kind of use forgiveness as a shorthand for salvation. We think, well, if I'm, if I'm saved, it means I'm forgiven, and that is very true. Justification, very important term in our Bibles that means it's the combination, the flip sides of the same coin of forgiveness and acceptance by God as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Adoption. You know, J.I. Packer, my favorite, one of my favorite writers in a book called Knowing God, this isn't a quote, I don't have it memorized, but he says somewhere in that book, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, see how much of a big deal he makes of God being his father in Jesus Christ. If that isn't the thing that kind of gets him out of bed in the morning and, and, and informs everything he or she does, it shows that person really doesn't yet understand Christianity very well at all. So adoption is a very important aspect of our salvation. Sanctification, the process where God changes you from the inside out more and more, conforming you to Christ's image throughout this life, ending in glorification when Christ comes or calls. All those things are right, necessary, and true. They are all good ways of describing our salvation and different aspects of it. All of those things are part of the picture that the Bible paints of our salvation in Christ. But how often do you think of the gospel of our salvation in terms of it bringing us into fellowship with the triune God? That's, that's something that should cross our minds. I should cross my mind much more than it does. Fellowship with God. And not just that, he, he mentions fellowship with other believers as well. It's not just you, yourself, and Jesus. I say this very often, but I think it bears repeating because we, we slip into these habits. Christianity is personal. No one else gets saved for you. You have to believe in Christ for yourself and trust in him for salvation. It's personal. It's always personal. It's never private. Christianity is never private. It's never meant to be. It's not just you, yourself, and Jesus. It's you have fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you have fellowship with, you can't help it, with the church, with every other believer that God ever saves or will save. We have fellowship with each other. That's why the church 
is so one of the reasons why the church is so important. If we grasp and appreciate this truth of, of having fellowship with God and with each other more fully, I think it will transform the way that we look at all the blessings of salvation that we have by faith in Christ. It will give us assurance and joy, and the joy of the Lord is meant to be our strength in worshiping and serving God in our generation. That's why assurance is so important. You know, many many see the gospel, uh, maybe they misunderstand it, I think, in some ways. They, they see it, and they might respond to it because they wish to be saved from suffering in hell, but they don't want to be saved from sin. There are many in this life, and there always have been, that see the gospel as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. They, they want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't want to be saved from its power or from being enslaved to it. But that's not what the gospel promises, is it? James Buchanan writes this, They have no desire to be delivered from sin and no relish for the spiritual happiness which Christ offers to bestow. They have a very narrow view of the gospel, such people, which is not the right way to look at it. Uh, to, many, to many, the gospel is little more than a divine get-out-of-jail-free card. It promises little more than not going to hell when we die. It's like a life insurance policy that we stick in a drawer and never think about again. Is that how John saw it? No, John saw it as fellowship or communion with God and with other believers. He saw it as involving fullness of joy. Think about the scripture text that Jonathan read in Exodus chapter 33. It's an amazing text. I, I, the more I look at it, the more I'm like, oh, maybe I should have preached on this instead, but I, I won't preach a mini-sermon inside of the sermon. But it talks about God meeting with Moses and speaking to him as a man speaks with his friend face to face. He's having fellowship with God. He wasn't just taking notes. He wasn't just acting as God's secretary uh, to take the notes down to the people. He was having fellowship with God. It even says that Joshua... His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent when Moses left. He just wanted just a little glimmer of what Moses had of his time with, with God. Remember what God said? What was kind of the whole hubbub of the passage? God, God told Moses to tell people, you know, I'm going to send you into, I'm going to lead you to victory. I'm going to give you victory over all the, uh, all the different tribes of, of Canaan. I almost got a good laugh out of it. Uh, there's a running joke with when churches have interns. Uh, this was not intentional on my part, Jonathan, but we always say that it always seems like the intern gets the passage with all the funny names. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. you get the Old Testament genealogy next week, brother. You know, you get those texts and they're like, ah, oh, you know, that wasn't intentional. I just haven't uh, <laughs> that way. I promise. But what did God say? I'm going to send you in. I'm going to lead you in. You're, I'm going to I'm going to give you victory over all the Canaanite tribes. In other words. You're going to get the promised land. You get to go. I told you. I'm paraphrasing. I told you I was going to give it to you. Guess what? I'm still going to give it to you, but there's a catch. What was the catch? I ain't going. God didn't say it. But he said, I'm not going with you. I'm going to send you. I'm going to deliver you in. I'm going to give you the land I promised to give you because I promised to give it to you, but you all are stiff-necked people, and I'm not going with you. And what did Moses say? Don't, don't send us. I think many Christians, many professing Christians today would have the opposite opinion. They would say, oh, goody, we get the promised land. Yeah, God's not going to be there, big whoop. Moses, think about what Moses said. Moses said, I'd rather be in the desert. I'd 
Like, leave me out here in the dirt with nothing but manna if you're here. Fellowship with God. Fullness of joy. That's, that's part of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That by faith in Christ, sinners are reconciled to God and brought into fellowship or communion with God and with his people. No wonder John said he wrote these things so that our joy may be complete. There are, there are differences of opinion on the text. Uh, some, some, script, some copies of the Bible will say your joy. Uh, a lot of the newer translations say our I'm going to cheat again and say it's both. It's almost irrelevant to me. because. But either way, John was including himself in that. John wasn't saying, your joy was separate from mine. John's joy was when his people, the people he wrote to in the church, had that joy. How might enjoying fellowship with God change our lives? Actually, making that your appreciation, making that the thing that you look for and look to the most in your life with God. Fellowship, enjoying fellowship with God. How would that change your life? How would that change your church life? Because John says what? You, you have, might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. How might it change our view of worship? Our attendance upon worship. Our view of the Lord's Day. I think this might be the biggest problem with our view of the Lord's Day. We want to get it over with and check the box because we're not enjoying fellowship with God. We don't we don't appreciate what we have in this 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 day this day off so to speak this vacation day that God gives us every Sunday. How would this change our time in private prayer and Bible reading, our private worship, if we're doing it not just to check a box but to have fellowship with God? When we serve God, our efforts at evangelism, our enduring suffering for the name of Christ, all these things would be changed and transformed in our hearts if we were seeking after and appreciating and enjoying fellowship with God. Fellowship with God and the joy of the Lord is what makes, takes the drudgery out of our duties and makes them a delight. That's why John can say later in this epistle, 1 John 5, 3, he says, this, this is a, I remember the first time I read this passage, now, it jumped off the page. I mean, it still does. 1 John 5, 3. This, this is the love of God. How do you know if you love God? Right? This is, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Sounds like rules and love don't contradict, right? That we keep his commandments. And then what does he add? And his commandments, God's commandments, are not what? Burdensome. It's not, oh, here I go again big load on my back and I have to do what God says. If we have fellowship with God, we delight to do what God would have us to do. In closing, I'd like to close with the words of John Owen, the great Puritan writer. Uh, he wrote a book. It's available in those little Puritan paperback versions, which are much easier to read. I recommend them to you. But he has a book he wrote called Communion with God. And he actually opens the book with our sermon text. And this is what he says at the end of the first chapter. He says, but first I pray that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has by the riches of his grace brought us from a state of enmity into this glorious fellowship with himself, that he may give you such a taste of, this, of his sweetness and excellence in this communion as to be stirred up to a greater longing for that eternal enjoyment of him in eternal glory. In other words, the fellowship we have with God now 
is meant to be just a small foretaste of that which is to come. That's really what Sunday is supposed to be too, isn't it? Like the more we enjoy fellowship with God in the, in the now, in the here and the now, the more we will look forward to that fellowship that's perfected in eternity with God in heaven.